Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. For our scripture reading today, we are reading 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Good morning, everyone. If we could uh, have a word of prayer before I uh, start. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us as we, uh, as we listen. Uh, and um, please help uh, everything to go according to your will. And in your name, amen. Um, so today the title of the sermon is The Tyrannical Mind. Um, you know, and what is the mindset of the tyrant? You know, a lot of people think that God is a tyrant. Um, that God's laws are a restriction on our freedoms to do what we please. And this one is is tough. Um, you know, we live in America, and ostensibly, it's the freest country on the planet. Um, if we, you know, look at uh, some tyrants in the Bible, you know, you know, God is love, and love can't exist if you don't have freedom. And Satan stands for the opposite of that. Um, in the Book of Revelation thirteen, the beast power uses force, uses coercion, uses fear. Um, I remember thinking when I read those end time prophecies that there would definitely need to be some kind of miracles for people to give up their rights. Uh, there would have to be some kind of magnificent satanic manifestation to bring about the kinds of things described in that passage where you can't buy or sell lest you have the mark. But the pandemic showed that civilization and our freedoms are far more fragile and easier to lose. Um, whatever the circumstances, the tyrant uses these three, fear, coercion, and control. One of the oldest stories of this is Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Um, So what is Cain's solution? Kill his brother. Death seems to be the ultimate control. Fear, coercion, and control have been used in brutal dictatorships around the world, and they're happening right now. But what is the mindset of the tyrant? Why why resort to fear, coercion, and control? Um, Lundy Bancroft is one of the leading experts in abuse. Uh, He started the first therapy program in America for helping abusive men to stop being abusive. Um, he wrote a book about it. He's actually written several. Um, but he, So he's a, the leading expert in abusive relationships. And um, he said that all abusers had in common certain beliefs. Um, so it wasn't about anger management. It wasn't about uh, you know not being able to communicate well. It wasn't about uh, childhood trauma because plenty of people experience abuse as children and don't go on to abuse other people. So it wasn't, it wasn't that. He goes through all these myths. Um, but he said at the core of it are certain beliefs. Um, one of them was a belief of superiority. Uh, a man feeling that like he has a moral superiority over his partner. Another one was entitlement. Feeling like you're owed things. Um, like or you deserve certain things. Um, and there, there are other beliefs, but I think those provide like a good framework for when we look at the Bible. So let's look at one of the first tyrants in the Bible, which is Lucifer. Um, if you go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, uh, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So, I mean, this is, incredibly arrogant things to be saying. And obviously he feels owed. He feels owed things. He feels entitled to God's throne. We know that Lucifer was the covering cherub. So somewhere along the lines, he began feeling entitled to the worship that the Lord received. Why don't I get worshiped? 
I move where God moves and I speak where God speaks. What makes him better than me? Because you have to think he's standing in front of God and all these people are worshiping God and he's like standing in the path of it. He's like, well, why don't I get it? You know, he doesn't like looking behind him. Um, and what did he tell Eve in Genesis 3, 5? That when you eat the fruit, what will happen? No, what did, what did Satan tell Eve? Well, you won't die and yeah, you will be like God. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan began selling the very thing that he wanted. He, he wanted to be God and he, oh, well, other people want to be God too. Even though um, it's quite a big undertaking to be. Uh, so the other examples are, you know, Ahab and uh, Naboth's vineyard. You know, he said, you know, well, I want that vineyard and well, you know, I should have that vineyard. So then he went and killed Naboth uh, to take his vineyard. The Pharisees also and their reputation, if you look at the way the Pharisees approached Jesus, they felt entitled to their station, their reputation. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was getting more followers. Um, there's another example. Uh, if you look in John 18, 22 through 24, it says, and when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by Jesus uh, or which stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? So it's like, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. So three things in the story. There's pretense, there's violence, and then there's ascending away. Tyrants think things like, how dare you do this to me? When you stop and think, you know, that that's at the root of almost every sin. It can be boiled down to entitlement, to the thought, I deserve this. I always get uncomfortable when people say things that like, you know, you deserve to be happy or you deserve a better X, Y, Z, a better house, a better car, a better spouse, etc. Um, it's, it's, it's a dangerous road to go down to start believing that you are entitled to certain things. Um, but if you look at all the commandments, you know, why don't people honor their parents? because they feel like they're better than their parents. Why do people murder? They feel entitled to their own sense of justice, so they make take matters into their own hands and they exalt themselves above judges or a jury of their peers. Why do people commit adultery? They want to feel good and they feel entitled to a relationship that's outside of their marriage. Why do people steal? They feel entitled to other people's possessions. Why do people tell lies against someone? Like Why would you tell a lie? You have to create two worlds when you lie. You have to create the... A, a fake world and then you have to be aware of who knows about your fake world and you have to juggle all those things but it's just like in the false trial of Jesus they they felt entitled to their perspective and they were so committed to the persecution of a hated enemy that they could use any means necessary to bring harm to them and they even weaponized the legal system against that person it wasn't about seeking the truth it was about making sure their perspective got taken hold um, some people might also lie because of fear, and this is also a kind of entitlement. It's a kind of entitlement to safety. Who told you that doing the right thing would not be dangerous? Doing the right thing is dangerous. Speaking out is dangerous. Um, it, you, there, are, there are people who, you know, Satan does not like the truth. Um, why do people covet the possessions of their neighbors? Because they feel entitled to them. Um, I'm consistently shocked and disturbed you know, I work as an insurance agent, so I, I meet with a lot of people, you know, hundreds of people, um, you know, every year. And uh, I'm consistently shocked and disturbed by the people who made very bad choices in life 
and all the anger, bitterness, and resentment that they hold toward people who've done better than them. There was a, I was in one house where the person hadn't filled out whatever government forms to get the government to pay for their, their heat. Uh, and they were, they were, it was freezing. It was freezing. It was like February when we were in the house. Absolutely cold. And uh, I saw there was a propane tank that was hooked up to a, a heater, like a small propane tank, and it was hooked up to a heater. And um, th- this guy gets done telling me how awful his sister is. What an awful woman, and she's terrible, and she's this, she's that. And then I, I ask, uh, you know, is that the same woman who got the propane tank for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like here he's sitting there cutting his sister down, and like she's the one that, you know, made sure that he got the, the that he got heat so he wouldn't just freeze to death. Um, so it just, it blows my mind um, just how, how resentful and, and bitter people can be uh, toward other people's success. Um why do people covet another person's spouse? Because maybe they feel entitled to a marriage that just works without having to do any work to make things better. Things would be easier if everything just magically bent around to your will. Entitlement is a very dark thing, but there's also an even darker part to entitlement. Most of the time when we think of entitlement, we think of being entitled to good things. Uh, but some people can have such a low view of themselves that they feel entitled to bad things. I don't know. You've probably talked to someone like that. Um, maybe you think that your feelings don't matter. Maybe you think that you deserve some kind of horrible treatment because you're such a worm. Um, you know, that's entitlement to bad. Uh, it's another It's another way of thinking the world revolves around you, only it's, it revolves around you in a negative way. Like, oh, well, this is happening to me. It should happen to me because I'm so awful. Um, I deserve this. I deserve this horrible, these horrible things that happen to me. One of my favorite authors, he said that you can do three things in life. You can be a tyrant, you can be a slave, or you can negotiate. And the trouble with negotiating is that it takes time, respect, and effort. Um, I'm always so surprised at how quickly people can resort to shaming someone. We live in a, an age of shame where you know if someone says something out of line, someone does something that's offensive, someone uh, says something we don't like, we just attack them mercilessly and try to get them fired and try to take away all of their, their, um, their livelihood. Um, shaming is also a kind of entitlement. It, like you feel entitled to tell someone else their inner being and what you know about them. You feel entitled to, to that. Rather than control yourself and say things like, I don't like this. You are scaring me. I feel unsafe when you drink. Rather than focusing on your own yard, you're in their yard telling them, I don't like your house. I don't like this grass. I don't like what you're doing here. You're terrible. You should be ashamed of yourself. Rather than say what and how we feel, we feel entitled to tell someone what he or she is. You take a kind of power over someone when you name them. And that power and smugness is darkly satisfying. It feels a lot more powerful than letting yourself feel sad. Feeling sad is not good. So it's easier to start attacking people. But love covers a multitude of sins. I don't know if you, have you ever heard of uh, Daryl Davis? Have any of you ever heard of him? It's a, um, it's a fascinating story. He, it, he's a, a black musician. He plays piano. Um, and he's, he's been a part of convincing at around 200 KKK members to leave the Klan. And he did it by, by talking with them and spending time with them. It's kind of, kind of unbelievable. If you get a chance to like look him up on, on, on that, he's just a musician and he, he was playing in an, in an all-white uh, bar 
and uh, he was playing the piano. He was invited there as a guest, and um, the person was like, "Man, you play you play just like Jerry Lee Lewis." And then he said, "Well, you know where Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play the piano, and like he learned it from you know an African American jazz musician." So you know, and he's like, "Oh no, that's not true." And and he struck up a friendship with this guy and spent time talking with him. But it turns out the guy was in the Klan. But anyway, um, so I, I was inspired by the story, and I, I was one time I was sitting in a house, and uh, I met with a guy, and we were just talking about you know um, times changing and things like that. And then he just said this thing that kind of I, I was really taken aback by. He said that he would never want his son or daughter to marry a, a black person. Uh, he said, I don't, wouldn't want my, my son to marry a black woman. I wouldn't want my uh, daughter to marry a black black man. And um, I remember just feeling shocked. Uh, like, man, this is 2022. How is it that a person can live in today's age and and think such a thing, much less say it out loud? And, uh, you know, the prevailing wisdom of today would suggest that the best route is to shame and attack this person, tell him how awful and stupid and racist he is, and if after you get done, you know, really giving it to them verbally, then the, the, the clouds will roll back like a scroll and they'll go, oh, I see the error of my ways. I see why, why I shouldn't say such things. Um, but anyway, so I, I remember I, I read this story about Daryl Davis. I was so inspired by it. I, I, I asked the guy, I said, really, why? I was very curious why he would say something like that. He says, well, I, I guess I wouldn't want my grandkids to, to not look like me. And I go, hmm. And then after there was a, a pause and a silence, he said, you know, now that I say it out loud, it, it sounds kind of silly. And I was like, oh, well, they, there you go. Because <laughs> it is silly. <laughs> like, it is a silly thing. And I, I thought about that afterwards, that, that that quiet moment of realization would never have happened if I had just launched into an attack about how awful and dumb you are. You know, because that that's, seems to be the, the modus operandi of what, the way things are today. Like, you know, uh, so yeah, but Daryl Davis, if you get a chance to read about him, um, you know, he would spend time with these, you know, for the people that would meet with him. There were some clans members that just wouldn't meet with him, but he would eat meals with them. He would have conversations with them. He'd question some of their ideas. He, I mean, you think about the, the danger he was putting himself into. It's really a very heroic story. Um, he's got a lot of YouTube videos that you can uh, check out. But he said in 1998, the lesson learned is ignorance breeds fear. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will breed hatred. If you don't keep hatred in check, it will breed destruction. In 2018, he said, What I have come to find to be the greatest and most effective and successful weapon that we can use, known to man, to combat such adversaries as ignorance, racism, hatred, violence, is also the least expensive weapon and the one that is least used by Americans. That weapon is called communication. Communication can be a kind of negotiation among equals, but the spirit of Satan is to enslave and control. We can make ourselves slaves to other tyrants, and oddly enough, we can play both of those roles within ourselves. We can punish ourselves miserably and treat ourselves poorly, isolating ourselves, overeating, not exercising, mindlessly consuming things, using drugs, hiding away from friends, engaging in habits that we know, based on our own, our own spirit, we know that these things are less fruitful and they make our lives more miserable. We can stay asleep and we can agree with ourselves that doing so is good or fitting or that we deserve this horrible life that we're giving ourselves. I was talking with someone recently that uh, is a recovering alcoholic uh, and they were saying how much their family hated them. My family hates me. My, fa- my family hates me. 
And I said, well, you know, they, they know my son. I said, you know, what if, what if you were doing the things to my son that you're doing to yourself? You know, what if you were making your son stay up till, making my son, uh, Charlie, what if I was making him uh, stay up till four in the morning and pumping him full of alcohol and, and not letting him sleep and making him hang out in shady places around dangerous people? What would you, what would you conclude about that? You'd conclude, man, you really hate your son. You must hate him, that you would do such awful things to him. And on some level, it's like, you know, these people that are struggling with addiction, they're destroying themselves because they hate themselves. They, they cannot see that. I've been, to, I've been to several funerals of people that either died from suicide or, or that drank themselves to death. And it's, it's amazing how many people are there weeping and crying over how much they love that person. And the person just could not see it while they were alive. It's like, why would I put up with this person? You know, because I've, I've, I've been, been there while people were getting sober. It's very painful and difficult and miserable. Like, why would you do that if you didn't love someone? Why would you even subject yourself to that, the kind of stress from that, the, the uncertainty and all those kind of things? You wouldn't do it if you didn't love them, but they can't, you know, just like what Jesus said, you know, believing, you know, if you, if you believe, then you'll be saved. It's not that you see it and then you're saved. You have to believe it first. So we can rob our families, we can rob our, our friends, and we can rob the world and rob God um, by not being what we could be. And we can lie to ourselves and pretend that, well, this doesn't matter. I have my dark little hole that I can destroy myself in and no one will see. No one has to know about this. And this is just what I deserve. Um, but Christ showed us an example uh, that it is right to stand up to evil. It's right to name it. It's right to call it out. He didn't just get slapped in the face and then pretend it was okay. You know, Jesus was like, why did you slap me? He didn't just lay down and, you know, some people have this idea of Jesus as like this harmless teddy bear that he just gets slapped around. He goes, well, that's just how it goes. You get slapped sometimes, you know. He could, he stood up to evil and he confronted it. Um, he also shows us a way to approach feelings of entitlement. Uh, in Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, this is not a good set of verses for your ego. Fair warning, trigger warning. Um but which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come in from the field, go and sit down to meet. You know, think about it. It's hard because we don't have servants in this day and age, but think about it. When you go out to eat, do you, do you tell the waitress or waiter, hey, you get yourself a meal, sit down and feed yourself. You know, no, you're like, I want to have potatoes or get me a hamburger or get me this, right? You know, and you just kind of expect that they're going to wait on you. Um, uh, and, and so verse eight says, and, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did those things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our, was our duty to do. Uh, so somehow... Somehow my generation and maybe some of the ones before and after have become a generation that wants credit and we like unearned recognition. We like to be, we like to be, um, we like to have, have credit, but Jesus is saying the exact opposite. You do a good thing. You're just doing your duty. You know, there's, you shouldn't get a gold star for doing God's will. That's like the minimum of what you should be doing in life. Um, that's just expected. 
Um, it's like, you know, well, I didn't lie to you. Like, oh, what a, what a high bar. <laughs> you told the truth. <laughs> you know, you should not be patting yourself on the back. Um, are we better than Jesus? That's the other question. The Spoiler alert, we are not, um, but we're not better than Jesus. If you read Philippians 2, it's one of my favorite uh, chapters. Uh, verse 1, it says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem the other better than themselves. Let not every man, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, it's the exact opposite of the attitude of Cain. What did Cain say when God said, where is your brother? I'm not my, am I my brother's keeper? Exactly. Well, I, that's not my problem. I, I, I don't see where that's my problem. Um, but it says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And, and I've heard this in a, a podcast and it, it was very powerful, but like, you're not just you. You're also you in five years, you in 10 years, you in 20 years, uh, you're you're not just an individual. You're also a brother or a sister or a son or a father or mother. And everything that we do has a, a ripple effect out across time. So it's, it's you know, when, when we say, you know, look every man not, not on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It's like that person five years from now, that's you. Uh, it's not you now, but it will be you. And is what you're doing now going to, help you in five years? Is this going to make everyone's lives around you better in five, 10, 15 years, and so on? Um, Verse five, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So Jesus had every right to be entitled. He had every right to believe he was owed things. But he did not walk around on earth with his hand out and expecting everyone to bow down to him and praise him. Jesus had every right. Even when when uh, Peter sliced off the servant's ear, you know, Jesus said, you know, don't you realize I could call down a legion of angels right now? I could call them down right now and solve this problem just like that. And that's a lot of power. You know, I... I don't know about you, but there's quite a few things that I would love a legion of angels to come down and just obliterate uh, and just make some of my problems in life just go away. Um, so I'm glad that I don't have that kind of power. Jesus had that kind of power, but he he let go of it. <clears throat> um, verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath... So wherefore, why? Therefore... Uh, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's a... It's a painful process to give up the things that you think you're entitled to. Um, it's miserable. And I can see why people don't like to do it. Uh, because it's, it, it, yeah, because it is so painful. Um, there's another verse in Matthew 8. 
uh, chapter or Matthew eight nineteen and twenty. Um, and a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. I mean, think about that too. If you had the possibility of snapping your fingers and there was a a nice bed and a house, you know, anywhere, I don't know, have any of you ever gone rustic camping where you're sleeping on the ground? Have you ever done that? Yeah. You're, you're young yet. You can still get away with it. But the older you get, it, it starts to not be as fun as it, as it was when you were younger. Um, you know, I was out rusty camping with my kids at Deerfield. And, uh, man, I was sore for weeks afterward. Weeks. It was like, man, my body is not, not what it used to be. Um, but Jesus had the power. He could just be like, man, I don't like sleeping on the ground. I'm, boom, I'm going to get a nice bed and this kind of thing. You know, the the kind of power we would just abuse constantly to get ourselves out of a jam. Um, but, you know, it, it uh, cause I learned a lesson from that. Uh, as I, I talked to my friend, Devin Smith and I said, Hey, you do rusty camping. How do you deal with sleeping on the ground? He's like, Oh, there's these like little rollout air mats that, you know, only weigh like a pound. They're really convenient. I'm like only a pound. Cause if you go to camping at Deerfield, you have to hike a mile to the campsite. Everything that you bring in has to be with you. So, weight is a premium. I was like, oh man. So, um, so you learn, you learn a little bit about yourself when you go through, um, hardships and when you fail. Um, there's another verse, um, another passage is John 13, 13 through 17. Uh, one of my favorites, this is after Jesus got done white washing the disciples feet, which, you know, we, we do that as a church. It's funny how even the way we do foot washing, it's still, some people look at that like, uh, I don't want to do that. I don't have to like, touch people's feet, you know, like I, you know, and they're, and they're clean feet. You know, sometimes I think, man, we should really have a communion where we all go like barefoot for two, three days um, before we have communion, just get our feet really nasty, you know, and, uh, and do that um, so that we can really experience what Jesus uh, uh, went through. But, you know, so Jesus did, I mean, those are some dirty feet and, and he'd wash the dirty feet of 12 men. I mean, uh, like I, I've washed my dad's feet at a communion service, you know, but like there, there's a lot, that, that's a lot of work. You know, men's feet are big. It's like he had to go through 12 sets of big, dirty feet. And he got done doing all that um, because, you know, back then, you know, they have these tables that are low tables and you're all sitting around on the floor. So like your, your feet are like right there next to your meal. So it's, it's kind of hard for us to imagine, you know, I lived in Korea for a year and I remember all the tables were very low. And so you'd sit down, you know, and you, you know, it's, it's your feet are like right there with your food. So I can see why they would say like, okay, this is a part of mealtime is like, get your feet clean, you know, cause you're going to be sitting on the floor and stuff, tracking dirt and God knows what else. Um, but yeah, so Jesus gets done doing all those things. And then he says, you call me master and Lord and ye say, well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So if you think about Jesus, it's very hard to remember this when you're suffering, but everything you've suffered, Jesus has somehow suffered the same thing. So you're not better than Jesus. Jesus has gone through those same things 
Um, and he knows what it's like to go through them. Um, but yeah, he was able to say, hey, if you if you call me master and Lord, you know, you're not better than me. That means you're going to have to wash each other's feet. You're going to have to do those kinds of things. So I'm going to uh, close with it. Um, you know, before I close, I wanted to tell anybody that if, if you know anyone who is struggling with abuse or you know someone who's suffering from abuse, um, I would strongly encourage you to read the book, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men by Lundy Bancroft. Um, it's a very good book. Uh, and in the book, he says that uh, men don't start working on their abuse until their woman leaves them or divorces them or arre- they get arrested by the police. Um, so if you are a man that fits into this category, that's your warning. Um, so work on it now before before something happens to you. And if you're um, uh, if you're a person that's suffering from that, or you um, you have a friend that is suffering from that, um, if it's safe, you get them that book uh, or read it so that you can understand. Because the trouble with the trouble with uh, people that are tyrants, they'll just come out and tell you that they're tyrants. You know, we lost a lot of our freedoms. You know, and uh, there's laws that have been passed in this country. Um, you know, as, as far back as like 2001. You know, we we um, People don't just take your freedoms and and do it like obviously. Hey, I'm coming here to take your freedoms. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a very subtle process that you th- you then lose. You know, the to give you an idea. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of you already know this, but the Revolutionary War was fought over a three percent tax. You know, so think about that one. Uh, the next time you're paying sales tax, and it's like double that. So um, that's just sales tax. So you know, the things things creep. They they creep. Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll end with this is that, uh, instead of being like Satan, instead of feeling entitled to things that are not ours, good and bad, um, we can be like Jesus. He had everything and he became nothing. We can give everything we have to become better people, to make the lives of everyone around us better, to make our families' lives better, to be better sons, better daughters, better mothers, better fathers, be better friends. We can be honest about our failings and we can confront them forthrightly. And uh, that's my prayer for all of us uh, is that we would, we would go on to, to emulate the life of Jesus and, um, and take on, take on the, the form of a servant. Uh, so if we could um, bow our heads and pray. Uh, Father in heaven, I thank you so much uh, for your example. Uh, Lord, you um, had everything and um, all power and and yet you gave up everything um, to be one of us and uh, you didn't come to be served but you came to serve uh, please help all of us uh, to be better people and um, and to give up the entitlements to things that we we're not entitled to um, I pray these things in the name of Jesus that uh, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.